Hey, I'm going to call an audible today. We're going to be in John chapter 12, if you'll open your Bibles there. John chapter 12. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, 1986 years ago, in the year 32 AD, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going to look at that today. The title of the message today is The Perspectives of the Christ. The Perspectives of the Christ. And we're going to look at uh, three different perspectives of the Easter week. We're going to look at today the perspectives of the crowd on Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the perspectives of the critics on Good Friday. And we're going to look at the perspectives of the criminal, the criminals on the cross on uh, Good Friday. So Palm Sunday, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as I said, 1986 years ago, uh, in the year 32 AD, and when he did so, he was welcomed by adoring crowds, and they were waving palm branches. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we're beginning here, we're looking at the perspectives, starting with this crowd, on what has become known as Palm Sunday. Here's how it reads. If you look at verses 12 and 13, we're going to go through uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, but we'll just pick it up here in verses 12 and 13. It says this, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, Jesus, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The words that they shouted are they're prophetic words. They were actually written in Psalm 118, hundreds of years before this. Psalm 118 verse 24 says, this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've woken up one day and you're like, oh, what a beautiful day. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And praise the Lord. That's great. Uh, and, and that's good. We should rejoice. We should recognize that every day is the day that the Lord has made. Any day you wake up and you're able to sit up and take nourishment, it's a good day, right? Any day you, you, you're, you wake up and you wake up, it's a good day. Thank you, Jesus, you know? And, and that's true, but contextually here, the psalmist wasn't referring to the day that you or I might say, oh, this is, this is the day the Lord has made, I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. No, he's speaking of a very particular day. He's speaking of this day, the day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and be heralded as the coming Messiah. And so this is what these guys are yelling, they're, they're recognizing, oh wow, here's our Messiah, right? And... They're rejoicing. Why is Jesus' coming into Jerusalem cause for such great rejoicing? Well, the answer, obviously, is because the world needs a Savior to save us from our sins. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He, he's the gift of God. He's the one that was given to, to come and to, to rescue us, to redeem us. The Bible says that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. That we're stuck on stupid, man, and we're, we're just, we, we all have that sin nature. You know, psychologists talk about kids that, 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 oh, they're born basically good, and it's through their environment that they learn to be bad. 
No, they don't. You know, give a two-year-old a, a toy. You don't have to teach them to beat their brother over the head when they fight over the toy. It just comes naturally. Why? Because we're sinners by nature and by choice. But the Bible says, the good news, the Bible says that, yes, we're sinners by nature and by choice. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul put it this way to the Romans. He said, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man die, uh, I'm sorry, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. God was not sitting up in heaven where you or I are concerned, looking at us and then something happened to where we finally got a clue and started improving our behavior and our character and our conduct and cleaned us up to a, to a state to where God said, all right, now you're acceptable. Oh, that's worthy of me doing something good for you. Okay, I'll go ahead and do that. No, all of us fit in with you know, those who crucified Jesus Christ. We, metaphorically speaking, were the ones that were whipping him and spitting upon his face and nailing him to a cross because it's our sins that Jesus went to the cross to, to, to pay for. You remember when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, there was all that debate about, oh gosh, is this going to inflame people against the Jews? Is this insinuating that the Jews were guilty of crucifying Jesus? Is this you know, insinuating that the Romans were guilty of crucifying Jesus? No, you and I are guilty of Jesus' crucifixion. It's because of our sin. But God demonstrates his love in that he died and paid the penalty for our sin. So that's the day that the psalmist was, was glorifying, was, was proclaiming. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because the perfect atonement for our sins, the only atonement that's, that's, that's uh, effectual, is, is given when the Messiah comes. So that's the day that the psalmist celebrated. But that's not the reason that the people here in our text are cheering and celebrating the Lord's coming. What are they celebrating? Well, to answer that question, let's back up, pick it up in verse 1, and read through the text. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served uh, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And we don't have time to get into this, but basically Jesus has been telling people, hey, listen, I've, I've, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many, and, and he's he's pretty much clued them into the fact that he's coming as a sacrifice for their sins. But nobody gets the memo. Mary gets the memo. She anoints him. And Jesus is going to say here in a minute that she's anointed his body for burial. She gets it. She's listened to the, the Lord. And so she makes this wonderful you know, sacrificial act of worship here, taking this very costly thing, which most likely was her dowry, 
uh, you know, that given that she, you know, the, the dowry for, for her wedding. And, and so she makes this incredible act of, of, of sacrificial worship to, to Jesus. But, verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds righteous, right? Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So there's Judas Iscariot's motive there. And so you've got this juxtaposition here. You've got Mary with this beautiful act of worship and you've got Judas, the ugliness of his heart being revealed here. Um, But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now, verse 9, a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This was a big deal. Lazarus dead three days in the tomb. Jesus showed up, miraculously called him forth. Lazarus come forth, and this this guy had been dead for three days who when he showed up and you know his his sister said oh Jesus you don't really want to go in there he's got a stink by now that's what the Bible says been in three days not a pretty picture you don't want to do that and he calls him forth and and heals him from the dead big deal but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus you think you show up, you raise somebody who's been dead for three days, that'll make a believer out of you, right? And so the religious leaders, they didn't, they didn't like that. They don't, they're like, let's get rid of the evidence. We don't want them following Jesus. There's none so blind as those who will not see. And so this is where they're at. And so um, here we have this incredible thing. And of course, verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Um, and and so, the, so the, here's this scene, this, this Jesus showing up and, and this, this great deal going on. Now there's three things to note about the crowd in these verses. Three things that clue us in to the motives of why they're heralding the Messiah and so willing to receive him. Number one, we see him shouting Hosanna. Now that name, that word Hosanna, it means literally save now. And it comes from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Uh, and, and here's the verses 25, verse 25 and 26 of Psalm 118 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, this gives us a clue of the crowd's motive for celebrating Jesus' arrival. You see, at this time, they were under the occupation of Rome. They had been for about 95 years at this point. In 63 B.C., the Roman legions under Pompey had conquered Jerusalem, and they deposed the king. And so the Jews hated Rome. They wanted Rome gone. And they're looking for a Messiah to come and to restore to Israel the throne of David. 
and to restore their rule and, and, and have that be the, the, the law of the land and roam out. And so when they shouted Hosanna, what they're saying is save the nation now. Bring us back to prosperity now. This is what they see that Jesus is their ticket to all of those things. And it reveals their hearts because their focus is on earthly things, not on eternal things. And I just hit the pause button right there and just ask you to take a prayerful walk right now What's your heart on? Is your heart on earthly things or is it on eternal things? Does Jesus become this convenient source for you of what's going to build your kingdom and your empire? Give you the patience you need. Give you the prosperity that you need. Help your business. Help your marriage. And I need a handy guy like you around here that can help me with all those things, God. Is your heart on earthly things or on eternal things? Well, the second thing to take note of here in the text that reveals the heart of, these, of this crowd is that they're heralding Jesus with palm branches. Now, palm branches were a nationalistic symbol. It, this would be like waving an American flag. In other words, they're saying, hey, you're the guy that's going to lead our rebellion against Rome. You know, waving palm branches, the equivalent of the red and white hat, you know, make Israel great again. This is the picture, okay? And... and why were they ready for Jesus to be that leader? Why were they so ready to say, you're the guy that can do it? Brings us to the third thing here. The text tells us because they'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Verse 1, verse 9, they both say it. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Look there in verse 9. A great many of the Jews knew he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. i got to see it to believe it. Really? There he is. There's the guy. Raised him from the dead. Well, surely he can help us get Rome out of here. So, so this, all of this tells us to the adoring crowds on Palm Sunday, they saw Jesus as the key to their circumstances. They didn't see him as the key to their souls. That's the problem that's going on right now. They completely miss the spiritual implication of the Messiah. That, hey, listen, we need a Savior. We need someone who's going to atone for our sin. We need to understand who Jesus really is, what his message really was, how great our need truly is. Our need is so great that God the Father gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's our need. Our greatest need is Jesus. And we need to understand that God, because he loves us, he's given Jesus. And listen, he didn't give Jesus. Jesus didn't come to die so that you could build your empire. Jesus came to die to save you from your sin. He came for you so that you might discover and learn and be set free from the things of this earth that are perishing and that are wasting away. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. And everything we give our lives to in this earth is temporary. God came to give us something that's eternal. And so that's the first thing. We have the perspective of the crowd on Palm Sunday. Now we turn our attention to the perspective of the critics on Good Friday, and to teach that for us, I'm going to welcome up Pastor Jim, who's going to take this section of the message. Give him a hand, Pastor Jim, who gets, who gets thinner every time I see him. <laughs> All right. That's only this week. I was stressing. 
Look at all your eyes looking at me. Look over there somewhere, will you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, good morning, church. It's nice to see your beautiful faces, and yes, you're all, all beautiful. I have the privilege of teaching through the perspectives of the critics, and in preparing this message, it was very sobering for me. Uh, this time of the year always is because it's just a reminder of the great things that Christ has done for me and the price that he paid for me. Um, and that's why we do communion. It's a reminder. We need to re- be reminded constantly. And I know for me, I always need to be reminded of the great pr- price that was paid for me. Uh, but we're going to be looking into Mark chapter 15. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark 15. And as you're making your way there, I'm just going to paint a picture for you of what's taking place and get you caught up before we uh, look into this passage. Uh, it's the week of Passover, obviously, and Jerusalem is flooded with people. It's estimated that during this time, a time of Christ, there was 40 to 50,000 people living in Jerusalem alone. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, it was a requirement for every male to come to the Passover. And so it's estimated that there was anywhere from 125,000 people to 250,000 people at this feast uh, yearly. And so this is um, a picture that I want you to keep in mind as we look uh, into this message because Pilate is going to present Jesus to this crowd. And you've got to remember, these are a multitude of people. And every time you see that word multitude in the scripture, uh, it's talking about an innumerable amount of people, that there are too many to count. It's not this little thing you see on TV where 150 people are going, yeah, you know, it's, this, is, this is massive. Uh, and if you've ever been to Israel or Jerusalem, uh, you realize it's not that big. So having this many people there is, uh, is tremendous. So anyway, getting you also caught up on Jesus and where he is at this point. Jesus has been up all night with his disciples. He's been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. They make their way to the Mount of Olives, uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's been praying all night. Uh, he's been falsely arrested. He's been illegally tried. He's falsely accused, blindfolded and beaten, spit upon and mocked. And according to Isaiah 50, he's, his beard has been plucked out. He's been given the death sentence by the Jewish leaders, turned over to Pilate so that they would carry out this death sentence. Uh, Pilate then, wanting nothing to do with him, sends him to Herod. Herod questions him. He mocks him and ridicules him again and sends him back to Pilate, which where we'll pick up our story where Jesus is brought back to Pilate to stand before this crowd of his own people. And beginning in verse 6 of Mark 15, we're going to read through verse 14. Now at the feast, he, meaning Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had done always done for them. But Pilate answered and saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that Pilate should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, What do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. You know, when I used to look at this passage of Scripture, it really made me frustrated and angry. Um, And especially when you look at these characters and what motivated them? What, what made them turn so easily? For example, the chief priests. What motivated them? Why did they become these critical judges so quickly? Well, that's easy. You read about it in verse 10. Their envy. Pilate saw through it. They were envious of Jesus. The high priest, 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, they could find no wrong in Jesus, so they had to ridicule him and judge him by his good works and good deeds, if that makes sense. All about pride, all about envy. That's the only reason why they, could put, they wanted to put Jesus to death. And then you look at Pilate's character. Now, he had different motivating factors. Actually, he probably had more than anyone else. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He realized that the Jewish leaders didn't turn Jesus over because their loyalty to Rome. There was more deceit behind the, the curtain of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests. And Pilate saw all that. But unlike the chief priest, he had a conscience. John chapter 19 points that out in verses 7 through 8. It says that the Jews answered him when they brought Jesus to him and said, we have a law, and according to our law, this man Jesus should die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard that, he was more afraid. He had this fear because of his conscience. And also, another motivating factor was his political pressure that he had. The Jews were pressing upon him. John, again, chapter 19, verse 12, says that Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king is against Caesar. In other words, if you don't do what we tell you to do, guess who we're going to go to? Caesar. But also another motivating factor that Pilate had was his wife. His wife was speaking wisdom to him. In Matthew 27, verse 19, this is that while he was sitting in his judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, hey, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered many things in a dream about him. And then lastly, another motivating factor, which I think is the biggest one for Pilate, was Jesus' innocence. He saw the innocence of Jesus. He questioned him over and over again. And throughout scriptures, all the gospels say the same thing when they quote Pilate, I find no wrong in him. No fault in him at all. He has done no evil. And then you have the character of Barabbas. Barabbas. John refers to him as a robber. Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a murderer. He's just a revolutionist, anti-Roman. He's against the Rome, Roman Empire. But he's just a character in this story. And I don't know about you, but I always wonder, why would you even mention him by name? Why not someone else? But why Barabbas? Just mention him by name. We'll get back to that in a second. And then there's the crowd, the crowd of this people. Remember that it's Passover week, and this crowd is massive. Um, it's the same crowd, actually, that Pastor Ted was talking about earlier. The only difference between the crowd that he was talking about and this crowd that I'm talking about is their age. They're a week older. <laughs> but this is, only, this is the same crowd that only a week ago were yelling out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this week they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So what changed them? What caused them to go from worshiper to these critical judges? Was it fear? Fear of their spiritual leaders? Well, possibly. It was some of it. I mean, it does say in Scripture here in verse 11 that the chief priests had stirred up the crowd to, to get them to make the right decision according to them. But why were they so easily swayed? Were they just following along the crowd? And some people do that. We see that in Acts chapter 19 with the riot at Ephesus. But I think what it comes down to is their disappointment. Their disappointment. Not getting what they wanted because they didn't know what they needed. Their faith was their appetite. Had nothing to do with their heart, as Pastor Ted pointed that out. 
And going back to this scene, according to John's gospel, after Pilate had brought Jesus out to this crowd and they asked for Barabbas, it says in John's gospel that he took Jesus back and he had him scourged in hopes to get him released, that they would see this man and say, okay, we feel sorry for him, let him go. But this is what happened according to John's gospel, verse 19, or chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. It says, Pilate then went out again and said to him, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This crowd was looking for a knight in shining armor. Instead of that, they got a suffering servant. Actually, what they looked at and what they saw is described by Isaiah the prophet, chapter 52, verse 14. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly a man, human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. That's what they saw. But the whole point of this story for you and I today is to point out that Jesus was already at work before the cross. He was willingly trading his life. And as far as Barabbas, why he's mentioned by name, to show you and I that Jesus traded his life just for this one man, a murderer and a robber, a sinner. He traded his life just for this one man. And as far as his crowd is concerned, he did the same thing for the entire crowd. And I told you in the beginning that I used to really struggle with this passage and get angry and frustrated. But one day the Lord showed me something. And maybe some of you want to do the same thing. He told me, close your eyes. I want you to really look and focus at this crowd. What do you see? And I did. I closed my eyes and I looked closely. And I told him, I see this angry crowd. And it's making me angry. Because they're against you. Then he said, look closer. Who do you see? And then I said, I see me. And it's no wonder that Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he died for us. This brings us to the perspective of the criminals. I'm going to invite Pastor Kyle to come up now. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Um, As Pastor Ted and Pastor Jim said, I had the privilege of uh, talking to you guys about the perspective of the criminals as they're being hung right next to Jesus. And so um, Pastor Ted started with Jesus coming in, the triumphal entry um, on Palm Sunday, uh, which is today. Um, And then the, the, the crowd wanting hailed Jesus to set up the earthly kingdom. They were going to be the one that takes us out of this, this uh, Roman oppression. And then uh, quickly that begins to turn as Jesus wasn't going to do what they thought he was going to do. And so he's on trial with Pontius Pilate, as Pastor Jim uh, just spoke about. And this man, Barabbas, uh, takes Jesus' place, um, and, or rather, Jesus takes Barabbas's place. Um, and, and so here we see Jesus now leaving that trial uh, on his way to Calvary to be hung on the, uh, on the cross. And this is where we pick up our story. So as, you, um, as we read the text here, I want to really kind of 
my prayer, my hope is that you would be able to see yourself in the story. Uh, I think there's a lot of power in that, putting ourselves here, um, giving us some context as Jesus is, is walking to the cross. People uh, are, are yelling at him, calling all kinds of names, uh, beating him, as Pastor Jim said, referencing Isaiah, ripping out his beard. And so you, you've seen the passion of Christ, maybe, so you understand the scene of what's happening right now. And this is exactly what Jesus is going through. Um, but if you notice here in Luke chapter 23, we'll read starting in verse 32 all the way down to, to 43, we see that the two criminals are with him during this entire ordeal. So pick it up with me, chapter 23 of Luke, starting in verse 32. It says, there, there were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, that they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots. And then the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, uh, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is this Christ, the chosen of God. And then the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written with or over him in letters in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. It said this, this is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, do you not even, real, or do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we deserve or we receive the, the due reward that, uh, that are of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said this to him, assuredly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so growing up as a kid reading this story, um, you, know, you, you see the one criminal uh, who, who gives his life to the Lord and the other one doesn't. But if you actually look at this, um, this passage and all the other gospels, um, the other gospels record that, that both criminals reviled him and yelled at him and mocked him. And, and if you look at Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 32, it says this, and even those, so that's plural, those who were crucified with him reviled Jesus. And then Matthew 27, verse 44 said this, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And so as you look at scripture, it seems to maybe be a contradiction or something doesn't line up here. Um, but as I was reading this and, and just praying through this and, and really the way I've always heard it taught and the way I've actually taught it before is that, you know, obviously we put ourselves in, in the spot of the criminal on the left and the criminal on the right, and that we deserve to be uh, put to death for our sin because the Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we understand that because of our sin, we deserve death, but we see Jesus offers salvation even on the last day of those that would repent and those that would give their life to him and surrender themselves. And so as you look at this, both Matthew and both Mark say that the criminals both reviled him and both blasphemed him and both hated him and mocked him and so forth. But Luke's gospel records that the one gives his life to Jesus. And so I think that the turning point here in this progression of 
the one rejecting God and yet the other accepting God starts in verse 39. So if you would pick it up here in verse 39 with me, it says this, Then one of the criminals who were hanged there, they blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. So we see no repentance in this guy. And then verse 40, it says, but the other, so it's the other criminal that was hanging there, both murderers deserving of death. He answered and said this. He rebuked the guy and he said this. Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? So we see here in verse 40 is that we see that this man um, realizes who Jesus is. He says, do you not even fear God? He didn't say, do you not even fear Jesus, but rather, do you not even fear God? That means he's recognizing Jesus as God. That's the first step that this man takes in his repentance is realizing who God is. And the second step is realizing who he is. And that's found in verse 41. Read with it or read it with me. It says this, and when, uh, and we indeed justly, for we deserve the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so he recognizes his own sin by saying this, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. So step one is recognizing who God is. Step two is recognizing who we are, which is not God in desperate need of God's salvation and restoration and saving work in our lives. And then step three here is found in verse 42. Read it with me. It says, and when Jesus, or then he said, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First, recognize that, that Jesus is God. Second, recognize that you need God. There's no way to salvation without God. And third is reaching out and saying, God, remember me. Lord, remember me. The most simple prayer that someone can possibly pray, change this guy's eternal destiny. Isn't that amazing? He didn't like have to do 40 Hail Marys and like take communion 10 times and get baptized five times. It was, Lord, remember me. But it came from a posture it came from a posture of reverence and realizing who he was, that he didn't have all life figured out. He recognized that he needed to reach out and say, God, remember me. And Jesus' response to repentant heart is this. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what changed for these robbers? You look at Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel. They were both hating on Jesus. They were both rebuking him and reviling him. So what changed? I believe verse 34 changed everything for this criminal. Then Jesus said, in the midst of them hating, in the midst of them spitting, in the midst of them reviling, cursing, you name it, Jesus' response to wickedness is this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm thankful for God's forgiveness in my life. And this criminal's thankful for the forgiveness that he has in his life. You know, Romans chapter two, verse four says this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to die to show us his love and his kindness for us so that we may live. Amen. How many of you can, can identify with, with the criminals on the cross and say, I, I, I was there, but God has saved me. How many of you are in need of that kindness even this morning to remember that God's goodness that leads us to repentance? 